The following is a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. These stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello and welcome to the 53rd gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 17th of July. I am your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure you have your deck thoroughly shuffled before you are gathered at the meeting table. Our guest tonight is Eugene Fosno. And, uh, I'm so, oh my God! And I just totally blew it right there. We practiced it too. We, we practiced it. Ah, uh, Fasano. There we go. Eugene Fasano. He is the creator. <laughs> I became that guy, Eugene, that we talked about. It's all right. right They'll remember it now. <laughs> uh, he is the creator of the, uh, well, free. Mm, pay what you like. Or what, what, what's the best way to describe your, your model for this? Pay what you want is what they call it on drive-thru RPG. I usually tell people it's free just because I don't expect anything for but it's always me. Okay. I suppose I okay. And your game is called Grin. Correct. And you are the founder of Arcana Games. And in the last year, you've uh, launched two successful Kickstarter campaigns and released over a half a dozen independent games mm-hmm, and c- created over 100 supplements for major role-playing game companies such as Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big deal. We haven't even started the interview, but I just want to ask you, how do you find time for that? That's a huge list of accomplishments. Well... Right now in life, I'm kind of doing the starving artist thing, so okay. <laughs> poverty and free time go hand in hand. Yes, fair enough, fair enough, I understand. And we'll, we'll get more into Arcana games and, and everything that you're doing and what it's all about in just a little bit. The second in command here, you haven't really heard his voice too much yet, is Glenn Bittner, and he is a movie reviewer on his YouTube show, The B-Movie Bunker, and the creator of the RPG Mist Runner. How are you this evening? I'm good. <laughs> kind of creepy, but all right. Well, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> as always, we do our roundtable uh, with a uh, with a game review, a little bit of gaming news, and then we are going to jump right into speaking with Eugene Fasano. There we go. I got it right again. Of Arcana Games. <laughs> And we'll talk more about Grin and some of the other upcoming projects that Arcana Games has in store. Uh, but first up here, you have a review for an interesting game called Mystic Veil. What is that about, Glenn? Well, let's just read you the little bit they have on the site. So, a curse has been placed on the Valley of Life. 
hearing the spirits of nature cry out for aid, clans of druids have arrived, and blah, 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 blah. The setting doesn't really matter. Um, what really makes this game awesome is the new system that AEG Games, Alderac, has made for this game. It's, they call it their card crafting system, where you've played deck builders like Dominion and Ascension and stuff like that. This one, your deck size never changes. It's 20 cards. It stays 20 cards. However, the cards are all in a sleeve, and you are buying semi-transparent upgrades to add to your cards, to create or craft your own cards. That so you cool. can mix and match different abilities. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Now, there's a good chance you haven't seen this in the stores yet because technically it's not officially out yet. Oh. Uh, it, it actually launches on the 20th. Uh, my store is part of AEG's newer program where we actually get it a little bit early. We get it a week ahead of time so that we can, you know, as, as a brick-and-mortar store, kind of have that little bit of jump and, and show it off to people and start spreading the word about this cool game. It's also interesting that they did this right before Gen Con because all too often, and I mean, understandably, companies want to premiere their stuff at Gen Con. It's the biggest event for them. But what usually ends up happening is that their stuff comes out at Gen Con and then those of us who have stores don't have it for two, three, four months. Yes. Um, so they actually did this right before Gen Con, which is awesome, and I love them for it. Um, and they said there's this awesome demo kit so we can show the game off, which we are doing. But what really makes it so cool is this this system. Now, transparent cards are nothing new. I mean, Gloom has been doing this for a while. But where they've taken it, I mean, the fact that you start off with your deck, and some of the cards in your deck are actually completely blank. And the upgrades come in three different uh, tiers. You have upper, uh, middle, and lower tiers. Uh, so it's basically it's you can have up to three different abilities on a card. Uh, some of the cards in your deck will have some abilities already on them. As I said, some of them are blank. And you get to mix and match these powers as you play. Now, how a turn works is you start off by basically setting up your field for, for the turn. And that means you're flipping over cards from your deck, and you keep flipping cards until you have, there are different symbols, and one of the symbols is called decay. Once you have three decay showing, you stop. The last card you flip is actually not part of your current field. It's called your on-deck card. That'll be the first card you get to use on your next turn in setting up your field. But the decay on it counts. So it'll stop you dead cold. And then that's what you have in your field is what you have to work with. Now, there'll be mana, which lets you buy upgrades to your cards. There are other special things like guardians, which give you nifty abilities. There are... Spirit symbols, which let you buy veils, uh, they're actually special cards that stay out of your deck that are basically like different, they're like land cards that always stay in play that might give you victory points or might give you extra mana, stuff like that. And you're basically competing for victory points. Uh, when the victory point pile runs out, the game ends, most points is going to win. It's just, it's super nifty because I, I like, what I like about deck building is like, I like how you can streamline your deck to make it run better and, and run the way you want it to run. And this takes it that step further in the fact that you're not just picking out, I like this one card. It's like, ooh, this card upgrade will work really, really well with this one because you'll get some that might add a bunch of decay, which is bad. But then you have other upgrades that will let you ignore that decay. So you can play those two things together on one card, and they get this awesome power, and you smell negating all the bad effects from it. Oh. It's super cool. Sure. I've only I've only played it once so far, 
um, and I watched the video that uh, Alderac put out, which if you want to learn how to play it really easily, they did a great video for it. I believe Becca, I think, is the is the woman who does it. She does a great job showing off the game. But, you know, find a, a game store in the area. They might have it in stock right now. Um, we're actually running this at GlenCon this weekend at my store coming up. So I'm looking forward to showing it off to more and more people. Now, it is two to four players. It takes, they say, 45 to 60 minutes. That sounds about right. It took us just a little over an hour our first time playing. So because we're still having to read every card to see what everything does. And occasionally sure. reference back to the book because there are a lot of different symbols. Because you have you have the decay symbols. There's three different spirit types. There's the guardian symbols. There's a wild card symbol. So you have a lot of things you have to have to remember. It retails for about forty five dollars, and the creator is uh, John D. Clare. Um, he hasn't done a lot, but I mean, if he came up with this, I expect some good things out of him in the future for sure. Huh, yeah. The, uh, oh, the, the sleeves are included, right? As as the, you need the to sleeves play. are included. You get everything you need to play in the box. So you get you get uh, enough sleeves to sleeve four four uh, twenty card decks for the players, and they're good quality sleeves too. Yeah, we're we're uh, if you're checking us out on YouTube, we're flipping through some of the pictures from uh, the BoardGameGeek.com site, and yeah, those are high quality. They're not just like the the polypropylene sleeves; they're actually a a harder sleeve uh, in which the the card slots into. So. Yeah, because, I mean, they are going to take some abuse. Yeah. Because you're going to be constantly sliding cards in as you play the game. Nice. And uh, I will be at GlenCon, so I, I really do want to give this uh, give this a try. I have not seen any of the kind of the, the clear card games that you're, you've talked about. I, I really kind of dig the mechanic of being able to take a card and kind of n- not manufacture, but alter it so it can do... Uh, many different things, so you're not just tied to a card does a thing. Correct. Um, you have the ability to to kind of custom build a card to do what you need it to do, and I think that's a really wonderful and uh, a high replayability uh, mechanic added to the game. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. First time I saw the clear cards was, as you mentioned before, in Gloom, and I was blown away by it. That was the first time I'd seen it, and I thought it was the most thing. And I always wanted there to be a deck builder, so I'm glad someone did it. <laughs> Just wish it had been me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> got there. We're flipping out of there. Um, and you said it was 40... 45. 45, okay. And that... Now, currently the game only supports up to four players, correct? Yes. Okay. Do you think... By the way it, the game is structured now, do you think that it would be fairly easy for them to alter the game so that you could do, you know, five or six players, or would that get too too weird? Um, I I think you could. Um, I've played other deck builders like Dominion, where you know if you add, so if you have the base Dominion, and then you add Intrigue, you can go up to like eight players. And I've played a seven-player game of Dominion. It really bogs down. Okay. Because you have so much downtime between your turn, because you know it, it, it it's nice to know what your opponent's doing, but after a while, you know, after watching six other people take their turns, you're like, oh, that's right, I get to go now. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they could fairly easily, and and they might. I mean, it would simply be a matter of of 
when they make an expansion, because I'm sure they will, just add some more of the starter deck. Now, and I know that you've just had a chance to play it. Do you think this game has the potential to have some of the longevity that, say, Magic the Gathering has? Quite possibly. I mean, it's it's hard to say because there aren't a lot of board games that you can really look back and say that, you know, because, I mean, Magic's been around over 25 years now. Yeah. Oh, or 20, wow. over 20 years, sorry, not 25 yet, tw- over 20 years. There aren't a lot of board games without going into the, the mainstream, like, like Monopoly and Sorry and Trouble, but, I mean, of the uh, hobby games, there aren't a lot that are still fairly big now that were when they came out. I mean, you still have Settlers of Catan, and that's coming up, I think, on 20 years, because that was around 95. Actually, I think it was 95, 96, right around there. But other than that, you know, it's a lot of your other still really well-known ones. Ticket to Ride, that's like 11 years. So it has the possibility, but it's hard to judge because there aren't a lot of those hobby games that really... I mean, there's some that are still out, yeah. I mean, you can still get Twilight Struggle, you know, you can still get, you know, other games that I bought, you know, 10 years ago I can still get, but you don't see them as staples in the store anymore. A lot of stores might have that one copy, or they might have a special order. But I see it has the potential for that. I mean, Dominion's had some definite staying power since it first debuted. And even though they said they were done doing expansions, they've released, I believe, two after that. So... um, So I, I can definitely see this happening. And AEG, they release a fair amount of stuff. They, they are not shy about putting new product out. And thankfully, most of it is, I would say, at least above average or better. There's a couple other games where I'm, I'm myself, I'm kind of mad, kind of eh. But most of their games, I mean, I find at least, at, at, the, at the very least, I find them enjoyable enough where if someone says, let's play Sail to India or something like that, I'll be like, sure, I'll play that. There's nothing where I go, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> maybe maybe one of the, the 58 versions of Love Letter. But, <laughs> but I, I can't... play Love Letter. What's that? I will always play Love Letter. So will I. But as, as someone who has to come up with shelf space, after a while you're like, I don't need more, more variants of this. <laughs> Which is how I definitely feel about. I mean, I have a Munchkin section now. Oh God. Yeah. There's just and because now they're doing all the guest artist sets. So, but I mean, if the fans want to buy it, I mean, I'm not gonna tell a company, no, don't don't do something that's gonna make you money. <laughs> yeah. Because obviously AEG, you know, they they release this product because people buy it. So I have to suck it up and either just find new ways to shelf stuff or just say, all right, I'm only going to carry these particular ones. If you want something else, I'll order it for you if I can, but I can't stock every game. Sure. Yep. No, fair enough. I try to buy them all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's no shame in that. Hello, I'm Gregor Sprague, and this is the Else Nerds. Now, what are the Else Nerds? Well, it's myself and Corey Scott, along with our producers, Beatmaster and Evan Rockty, as we talk about everything that is on our nerdy little heart, whether it be comic books, movies, TV shows, video games, cell phones, the moments that we're walking down the street and a person says hi, it doesn't matter. We talk about everything, and you can find it at elsenerds.com. Speaking of new and interesting things, uh, Forged in Battle, which is the uh, Star Wars Age of Rebellion RPG, uh, will be released here in August. 
in uh, just a well, just about three or four weeks here. This is from the uh, Fantasy Flight Games press release. There we go. God, language has totally escaped me today. I, I think I cooked my brain playing too much Fallout 4. Uh, <laughs> here we go. This is from the press release. Uh, Forged in Battle, a new supplement for the Star Wars Age of Rebellion role-playing game, doesn't just put you in the middle of the action. Its new specializations equip soldiers to fight in the front lines or even in advance of the main forces. Today's article introduces you to the Heavy Vanguard and Trailblazer special... I'm sorry, Heavy, comma, Vanguard, comma, and Trailblazer specializations, which I didn't see... I didn't see anything interesting on the Heavy, so I just... I, I pulled that out. I, I just put in Trailblazers and Vanguards here. I, I edited this down because the... Uh, the press release was a little long. Uh, this is designed for soldiers, but just as useful for commanders or even warriors, guardians, and colonialists of the Force and Destiny and Edge of the Empire systems. Uh, they also preview the three soldier-focused campaigns uh, outlined in the book, which uh, I cut out. Uh, here we go. Trailblazers are experts in guerrilla warfare. They know how to use a planet's terrain, whether that be Naboo's swamps or Cloud City's streets as a weapon. With their bonus skills of perception, stealth, survival, and knowledge of Outer Rim. Now Vanguards, on the other hand, seize initiative and open fire rather than formulate tricks and traps. Uh, their cool and vigilant skills enable them to shoot first whenever necessary, while their athletics and resilience help dodge blows stay alive, and bounce back easily. Now, Age of Rebellion, here we go. How long has that been out now, Glenn? Has it been like two, three years? Oh, at least that long. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember because there's several different uh, Star Wars RPGs because you have Age of Rebellion, you have uh, my mice bleed blanking on them now. Uh, Force and Destiny. Force and Destiny, yeah. So and Edge of the Empire. And Edge of the Empire. Major of it's it's at least at least a couple of years now. Okay. Yeah, I you know I'm trying to remember the last time I played in the nineties, which they would have been owned by I wanna say West End. Yeah, West End games owned the original when it was a, a D six system. Yep. I played a fair amount of that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's it, it's had a couple of different companies pick it up over time, but it seems like this this version here has really, from Fantasy Flight, seems to, it feels like it has a little bit more traction than, than the other versions that I've seen. One of the guys who made Age of Rebellion, uh, Sterling Hershey, I mean, he worked on the West End games and on the Wizards of the Coast version of Star Wars. <laughs> so, I mean, he's worked on every version of the Star Wars role-playing game, pretty much. Okay. So, so I mean, I, I think, you know, it's it's you've had it evolve from someone who's been there pretty much from the start. Now, would you would you say that that's a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm going to open that up to everybody here. Eugene, what are you... If you, looking at this, kind of like a, a grand overview, this Star Wars has been held by two different companies previous to Fantasy Flight. Do you think having 
like a person that has been on throughout? Do you think that that's good or bad? What What I do you think? think would... There's Go certainly ahead. value in that uh, having someone who's been there from the start because you know they can they can evolve it as they see fit. But um, I mean, I personally haven't played the Star Wars RPGs, but just to use D and D as like the industry example, I think it's been really healthy that it's changed hands and you know changed designers and changed developers, just because people can see the cool ideas that other individuals brought to the table and sort of keep those as it adapts and just take what sticks, take what people like. But people seem to like the Star Wars RPGs. I mean, I've only heard good things, so whatever they're doing, he must be doing it right. Sure. Okay. Glenn, I definitely think it can be a good thing. It helps when, when you're not the only person working on something because if you are the only one, you know, you're only you're kind of in your own personal echo chamber. Yeah, um, absolutely. But but I think the fact that I mean he's you know, he's at least I know how FFG does stuff. I mean you have and most of your your bigger production level RPGs, you have teams of people. Yeah. That's not one guy. I mean one guy might write out the core thing, but there's other people doing editing work and other people, you know, obviously playtesting and checking stuff out. Certainly. So I, I think it's it's good in that in that he can look back and he can see what things worked well and what things didn't, you know, because that way you can, you know, and basically learn from from past mistakes that, yeah, this part here was just, wow, did we just screw the pooch on that one? So let's not, let's not do that again. But, yeah, no, I, I think overall I think it's a good thing. And I mean that just might also be because I've I loved the the West End games ones. I never really did the Wizard of the Coast version, and I haven't played the FFG one, but I've read some of the books, and I know a lot of my staff are really big into it. They love love the uh, Star Wars stuff. Okay, that's good. You know the only the only reason why I really wanted to discuss it is. You want to make sure that you have the right person who has been tagged to the previous two versions of uh, somebody who does have the, you know, the capacity to learn from mistakes. Otherwise, you could be, you know, moving into a, a third version of something that may or may not do that well or be that good. It, it takes the right person to be able to to learn and and take away good things you know, from playtesting from previous versions and not have the ego get in the way of 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 making a good game and making making an improvement in moving to uh, to a new edition. So uh, looking in, in in some of the work that I've done in the past and some people that I've worked and granted this is like IT web design, sometimes <laughs> You get somebody that gets tagged to multiple projects, and you're like, Ugh. yeah, okay. Um, but no, that's that's good that they've they've got somebody who's kind of the cream of the crop and has the capacity to to learn and to improve and to help construct a a better version of of something. And Star Wars is so is so beloved as a property. You really can't afford to screw it up, you know. <laughs> the nerd rage over something done very poorly uh, with a property like Star Wars or a property like Star Trek that would absolutely shoot something in the butt before it even gets out the gate. So, 
it's also mythos. You know, there's a lot to explore. I could see getting burned out if you were working in the same contained space for many iterations, but there are just so many angles you can go at the sort of Star Wars story from that I think there's a lot there to keep interest on the creator side. Sure. And, you know, the other thing, too, is now is probably the best time now that Disney has taken over and they've kind of culled out some of the material that was sort of canon in the past and, you know, basically start over and and still have the, the same consistent voice as uh, the one that Disney is going to be presenting. So uh, that's, that's kind of a, a good thing as well. Yeah, I think it's a real healthy reboot. Yeah, absolutely. If you like what you've heard on this Galactic Network podcast, please consider helping us out financially by going to gncast.com slash support. On that page, you'll find links to our Patreon campaign where you can make a small recurring monthly pledge of as little as $1. Or click on our Amazon affiliate link, make a purchase, and we get a very small percentage from the sale. Again, go to gncast.com slash support. And thank you for supporting the Galactic Network podcast. Next up here, the Kickstarter Spotlight. Last week, we, uh, or I'm sorry, not last week. Uh, last month. <laughs> unfortunately, between your schedule and vacation on my end, yeah, we've had a bit of a hiatus here. Uh, the last time that we were together, we talked about Organ Attack, which is a card game from uh, the Awkward Yeti. Group now the awkward Yeti. If you're not familiar, is a is a web comic that's very funny and it it deals with basically uh, anthropomorphic organs, <laughs> and each organ has its own voice, which seems to be consistent with what you would think that uh, that particular organ might be. Like the brain, obviously, is always thinking and worrying about things. The heart does whatever it wants to and has fun. And each of those organs present... I'm making this sound really kind of weird and silly, but it's actually a very wonderful webcomic. And what they've done is they've taken that and moved it into a card game. And basically... You and your opponents attack each other's organs and try to destroy them. <laughs> uh, you know, if we're going to boil it down to what it actually is all about. Now, they were looking for $12,000 to reach their goal. They made it to a little over $526,000. Uh, so this is definitely uh, going to happen. And I know that my girlfriend absolutely adores the Awkward Yeti, so we will be getting this in our gaming closet uh, as soon as it is released. And it looks like it's going to be available uh, around October or November of this year. So, And they hit, obviously, a lot of stretch goals. Uh, they reached a point where they broke 500000 and with that, they're going to have a mobile version for Android, iPhone, and the web so that is going to happen as well. So this made it in a big way, and that's pretty darn cool. And now we want to talk about a new game that you've brought to us, and uh, it's a name that uh, folks will probably be very familiar with. What is the name of the game that we are highlighting on the Kickstarter Spotlight? This is called Evil Dead 2 
the official board game. Uh, <laughs> by Space Goat uh, Productions. Those of you that read the Evil Dead 2 comic, that's you should know who Space Goat Productions are, as they've been the ones working on the comic. But it's basically it's a tile and minis game set basically based off of the Evil Dead 2 movie. You uh, play, I love in the video, it says you play as your favorite characters and Jake. Uh, <laughs> if you're familiar with the movie, you know who Jake is. You play as them, and you are trying to find uh, the pages of the Necronomicon so that you can open the portal and send the Kandirian demon back through it. Of course, while you're doing this, you have to worry about deadites and, uh, you know, Ash's severed hand and, you know, the <laughs> fact that there are the deadite versions of all the characters as well. So it looks pretty nifty. And, I mean, I, part of that is me just going, oh, I got an Evil Dead game. Because <laughs> I yeah. love the Evil Dead. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, they were looking for... $70,000. There are already... Wow, this has gone up since I looked earlier today. They're already at $304,000. So, with 23 days to go yet. <laughs> 23 days to go. So it's happening, folks. And they've, they've bundled uh, some of some of their the comic stuff with it as well. So I mean, even if you just want to back it, I mean, for 5 bucks you can back it. You don't get the game, but hey, you get a digital copy of, of uh, Evil Dead Beyond Dead by Dawn Number 1. And you get to follow the, all the updates. Now, if you want the game, you got to shell out sixty bucks. Which, for a standard board game, that's pretty normal, especially one that comes with minis, and tiles, and all the cards and all that stuff. I mean, you and do get. Also, they have to pay for the licensing. Yes. So, uh, sixty bucks is actually a pretty darn good price when you take everything into account. Correct. And you know, then you start going up. You know, seventy bucks, you get the. Uh, deluxe copy of the game, which is the official board game for $10 less. The deluxe Wait, version includes... It's the, all gone now. Yeah, that's all. Wow, that, well, that was the early bird. Yeah. That's why. So 80 bucks is what you got to pay now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that they sold those 2,000 copies of the early bird already. Yeah. So And they've already got almost 1,600 backers for the other one. So $80, you get the deluxe copy, uh, which includes the variant X Mortis box, fully painted figures, combat ash figure in place of normal ash, a dead-eyed Henrietta figure, a.k.a. the gooseneck, the I'll swallow your soul, that uh, one. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and shipping is separate, but these guys are based in the U.S., so it, they'll ship anywhere in the world. But if you're based in the U.S., I don't expect shipping would really cost you that much based on what I paid for the Massive Darkness Kickstarter that I backed. Um, <laughs> which I don't normally back games that big because I wait for them to come to my store, but I wanted all the cool add-ons. Oh, um, yeah. oh, and they have a retailer tier. Yes. That's great. They have two retailers. That, that is actually really nice because as a retailer, I like when Kickstarters do that, which means I can get in on this and have it in my store, which is really nice. They've already unlocked uh, some of these stretch goals. Obviously, if they are already $200 ahead of what they wanted. They uh, One of the things is a solo rules variant, which is nice. They unlocked a Deadite Player Minis Pack. So at the $60 plus, oh. you get the Deadite figures of Ash, Annie, Bobby Joe, Linda, Jake, and Ed. Um, <laughs> they unlocked the Monster Madness Miniature Pack, which gets you two demons, two knights, two killer trees, and four <laughs> animals. 
the trees aren't so much a killer as they are something else. You also get bonus comic they unlocked, the official sequel before the other sequel. <laughs> they unlocked the Deadite Army stretch goal, which is everyone, all of the sets get the normal Deadite Henrietta and 10 unique Kickstarter exclusive Deadite figures in the deluxe set in place of the generic Deadite mold. Yep. Uh, they have an Ash versus Adolf fight the Fuhrer. <laughs> the Deadite Hitler figure, event card, and Revenge of Hitler game mode. <laughs> the Lucky Sucker, which is uh, three exclusive random sucker figures. Yeah, they just they've unlocked only only one they've currently unlocked is the item tokens where you get a, a bunch of plastic stoke tokens instead of the cardboard. Or in sorry, uh, the deluxe ones get the plastic item tokens. Standard edition will still have the cardboard. Sorry, folks, if you're only going to get the standard. And they've got other ones still that I'm sure they're going to hit. I mean, the next one's only twenty-one thousand away. Yep. So, they'll upgrade the cards and get the director's pack, and just it keeps going up. I mean, they've got up through a million dollars. Yeah, and judging by the way they're going, I I think they're going to get close, if not hit that million. Well, I'm sure if they hit a five hundred thousand. They save more goals to be added. They'll add more yeah. in between that because that's a big jump to go, hey, we're adding this stuff every $50,000 or so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this one, we're going to wait for another half million. Well, that'd be, you know. And they've got things you can add on already, too. I mean, you can add on the X Mortis comic bundle. So you can get this, their comics you can add on. They've already got the Cabin of Carnage pack, some other Soul Slugger pack, the Ancient Nonsense. So they've got a bunch of different packs of cards and stuff you can already add on. So it looked pretty cool. That is awesome. Yeah. So, uh, first off, to bring Eugene back into the conversation here, uh, are you a fan of Evil Dead 2? Uh, I am familiar. Okay. Uh, have you seen the Ash vs. Evil Dead uh, show on Showtime? I have not, but I certainly have a couple friends who were very excited when it came out. Yeah. Same here, same here. Now... You know, and I, I definitely want to ask this question of you, Eugene, because oh, you have done a lot of work with using Kickstarter to finance and launch your products. Do you, and, and we've asked this question of, of previous guests too, but I, I definitely want to get your take on this. Kickstarter, how do you feel it has contributed to <clears throat> a renaissance of, of game uh, creation? I think it's a fantastic tool, and I think it's absolutely responsible for, as you said, a renaissance, nay, a, a golden age of board games and RPGs. I think it's really kind of a unique thing that hasn't existed before, and it provides a lot of opportunities that previously didn't exist. Like, you can make something like Evil Dead, which kind of has a cult following, and be incredibly successful with it because you can, you can print as much as there is demand for, and there's something really cool about that, uh, especially in the RPG world, which is kind of the side I'm coming from. Because you can make really specific products that don't have mass market appeal, and just the people that want them are the people that get them, and they see it because it's the best free advertising there is, and then you get to make a cool thing that some people will really, really love. Yeah, and that's, you know, I really feel that that's one of the things that, you know, the internet gives us a lot of cat pictures, but the other thing it helps uh, us do is get people connected who are interested in a particular thing. And when you're able to do that, you have the ability to get a group of people together who enjoy a thing, and especially when it comes to Kickstarter and game creation, 
people who like a particular genre or a particular, you know, like Evil Dead 2 uh, are fans of things like that, you have a much easier time connecting with them, letting them know about it, and getting them kind of involved and on board. And with the Kickstarter model of allowing those people to help make that thing happen has been so, so wonderful and such a great tool, especially for smaller indie folks. And, and Absolutely. You know, obviously you are most certainly included that uh, in that with, uh, with uh, your company at Arcana Games to yeah. help bring that stuff about and your, get your visions actually created and in the hands of people who are like-minded and enjoy those things as well. Yeah, it's an extremely validating experience to sort of put an idea out there and be like, hey, this is a piece of art I could produce. I'm a relative no one. You know, this is a new indie startup. I have nothing in my name. And then people people will say, hey, that's a cool idea and can contribute. And I think that's that's very validating as an artist to have that be possible. And then, you know, be able to produce art from that and see that idea come into physical being. Sure. No, absolutely. And I, I wish I had a thing to, to make, to, to know what that feeling is like to, you know, put something on Kickstarter and just spread it around a little bit and have it, have it take off and have it be successful. That, that's got to be such a unique, validating, like you said, uh, experience that, um, uh, I, I couldn't even begin to put into words what that must feel like. Yeah, I mean, currently I'm I'm working with an artist on a role-playing game I'm putting out, which should be out by the end of the summer. And, you know, every every time I see one of the new pieces he produced, I'm like, my God, it's really happening. There it is. That's going to be in a book with my name on it. It's very cool. Very cool. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so getting back to Evil Dead 2, this is going to be released. The estimated delivery is November of this year. It's a shame they weren't able to hit October. Huh. Um, yeah. Have it be you know in people's hands by Halloween. That would be really awesome. But they're hitting November. If it's the, more towards the beginning of November, uh, they've definitely... Uh, they're going to to hit that prime time for that particular genre of horror in the year. So there's part of me that wonders. That seems really quick with all these add-ons. It does, especially with the minis. Yeah, I as soon as you mentioned that, I'm like, oh god, yeah. Um, I mean, if if they're if they're having these. I mean, unless they've already made these with the expectation of selling them already, because I mean, I doubt I doubt they're having the minis made in the states. No. And overseas, I mean, you're talking. I mean, just the shipping alone is gonna, you know, I mean, most turnaround time for for product from having talked with like FFG, who I think probably has a little more clout in telling factories over there what to do than Space Goat does. That's usually three months. So, yeah. I'm I'm a I, I not saying that they're not going to make the stuff. It just that seems really quick for the amount of stuff that they're throwing out there. It's probably. Oh an wait idea. a minute! Wait a minute! Oh no, that was something else. I'm sorry. What were you going to say, Eugene? I was going to say it, it might just be an ideal projection. Yeah. Because things things inevitably go wrong. Yeah. It's sad to say, but it's true. Yeah. Well, I I remember. What was it? Two years ago, I got in on a a bones a bones two set, and it was probably about 
I think it was released about four to six months late because they had some issues with uh, some of the designs and um, getting things to come out right uh, with with the minis. So, and that's you know, and Reaper is not a small company by any stretch of the imagination. And this is probably I want to say that that was their either their fourth or sixth round that I got involved in. So. You know, it it wasn't their their first rodeo by any stretch of the imagination doing the Kickstarter route. So, yeah, you're right. It, when you're dealing with the f the amount of time it takes to get product shipped overseas, uh, this isn't FedEx. This is shipped overseas because you're usually working with with large quantities of of product. You have to you have to calculate that that bit of time in there and uh, actually overestimate. You know. Uh, just to, you always want to overestimate and come in sooner than projected. That is wise. Going the opposite way can lead to bad PR. Uh, yep. for, for And especially if you're a first-time uh, organization trying to do something through Kickstarter, you don't really want to have that hanging on you. You want to look good your first time out especially. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And especially if they keep doing uh, different stretch goals every fifty thousand, it's gonna get pretty wild pretty quick. So, yeah, t time will tell, and we'll we'll find out how that all shakes out in the end. We're gonna move on now. You you've been hearing a bit of uh, our guest uh, Eugene Fizzano from Arcana Games, uh, a part of the conversation here throughout, and. We're going to turn the spotlight on him and uh, speak to him about what he's been doing with Arcana Games. You know, when we opened the show, we we mentioned that in one year's time, <laughs> you've put out a lot of different things, and some of these things have dovetailed with Wizards of the Coast product. You've managed to do a lot of things in the past year, and you said you were doing the starving artist route, uh, which offers you the time uh, to do. Uh, everything that you've been you've been doing in this past year, and that takes a great deal of dedication, and, and my hats off to you for that. Um, that that's it's got to be a hard thing to do, but you know, I have a feeling, especially starting out as an indie, that might be the way that you really have to go to to dedicate that time to to build. To build the brand, that's always a long game. Yeah. It's it's not going to happen overnight. Or if it does, it's like winning the lottery. It's very rare. Or if you're not, the nice thing about taking the long view and the long approach is, as you build things, then you have the ability to to see how to build the infrastructure to to, to do the things that you need to do to make things run smoothly. And if something just blows up, sometimes. You know, things get really wonky, and uh, that company could be short-lived. So always plan for the long game. I've learned a lot in the last year. <laughs> I can imagine. I can absolutely imagine. First things first. Sure. Everybody has a story as to what got them into gaming, into RPGs, and ultimately to building their own company. What is, what is your story, Eugene? And what is the story of Arcana Games? Well, Arcana Games is relatively new. Um, I made it, I guess, a little over a year ago when I launched my first uh, successful Kickstarter. But um, that was when I was about a year out of college. So I think 
I guess we'll rewind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as all good stories, we'll start at the beginning. I've been pretty much making games my entire life. I, I made them as a kid. Um, throughout my childhood, I made games for my other friends. Um, you know, I was always the DM when we played D&D, that type of thing. Sure. Uh, and then in college, I guess six years ago or so, uh, I got a little more serious about it, but I was still just doing it as a hobby. Uh, I'd end up, you know, a friend needed a present, I made them a game. We were having some sort of get-together, like a Halloween party. I'd make a game for it. Um, and I, I, in college, I never thought I'd do it as a career, but after I got out, uh, I have an English degree and other, other nonsense. But uh, I, I never considered I'd sort of do it as a job until I got out, and I was like, wait, this is, this is something I'm actually really terribly passionate about, even more so than what I spent all those years studying and all that money. And I realized that I should kind of take the jump from, from hobby to a starving artist part-time job. <laughs> now, to be fair, uh, there's a lot of writing that's got to be involved with, with what Absolutely you're doing. Absolutely, no. My, my, my skill set uh, that I acquired in college is certainly applicable. I mean, all the, and really, most of it is about communication on the design end, even, even the writing skills aside, you know, talking to artists, talking to, uh, to producers, talking just PR. It's all about communication at the end of the day, which is essentially what I studied. Sure, so okay. So def definitely useful. And also, um, I had a very heavy focus in uh, mythology and folklore, and that's absolutely applicable, especially to role-playing games. No, that's that's really cool. And what would you say, especially when it comes to, to management and coordinating team effort, as it were, to, to create a product, do you feel that you've really learned a lot in this past year as to, you know, maybe some of the, the pitfalls that can happen or what is your management style? I guess that's a good question to, to, to have. Are you more hands-on or do you like to just let people do their thing and then check in? I usually let people kind of do their own thing. I like to sort of uh, describe my, my conception or my vision for whatever we're working on and then sort of just let people let people go in their own artistic direction. But of course, granted, I choose people who I feel their artistic choices will align with the end goal of the project, and sure. usually I'm correct, so it works out. Well, that's good, and it's got to be good to have that kind of that kind of instinct because I can imagine, especially if you're a person who's not good with with conflict, as it were, or yeah. you know, seeing somebody's work and going, mm, I don't know. Um, you know, That's definitely was, been a hard skill to acquire. I think yeah. going into it, I was still kind of figuring that out. But as a person, I'm pretty good with dealing with that. And uh, it just comes down to knowing what you want, you know, and knowing what you can allocate resources towards. Because there's no point sure. paying someone for something that you won't be happy about. Yeah. Or won't be in line with what you're trying to create. Yeah. I, you know, it, there's there's such a difference between you know especially with the type of tone that you want for a game you wouldn't if you're trying to do something lighthearted you wouldn't try to find an artist who is more in line with like a a, a Mike Mignola or you yeah. know somebody who does more darker themed artwork you want to make sure that you've you know you you've got somebody that fits the tone and that's that's good to have that instinct and that knowledge uh, of who to work with for a particular project so, sorry about that. It's all right. That's, that's absolutely something I've learned, too, because I'm wearing a lot of hats, you know, since it is an indie company. Like, I, I am the art director in addition to being the lead designer and all that. I can really appreciate how, 
how good it would be to actually work with a team on a larger project like Dungeons and Dragons, where you can where you can have someone who is solely devoted to that end, and you know people have more specified tasks. That must be you could accomplish cool things, and like, people do. Yeah, we've had an opportunity to talk with uh, Kenneth Height and uh, uh, Paris. Oh my God, I'm sorry, Paris, if you're listening to this, uh, Paris Crenshaw, um, who, uh, who who have worn the editor hat for for a larger uh, larger operation and uh, have have really you know talked in depth about how you know the things that you're talking about right now at a larger scale are still the same you know th- that yeah. skill that skill set it doesn't matter if you're working for Dungeons and Dragons or Wizards of the Coast or or anybody or even just a, a smaller uh, smaller operation uh, that skill is is invaluable um, and, and and essential uh, even more so I think with an indie um, because you really need to be focused um, because you have such a smaller team, so no, yes. it's it's a good good skill to have and to to develop. Um, we talked a little bit uh, previously about your thoughts on Kickstarter. Um, what I'm trying to think, you know, I, I guess I don't have a good follow up question on. <laughs> I thought I had a good follow up question on Kickstarter, and I really don't. I think right. Kickstarter is magical. Uh, I think. Anytime on Kickstarter, I feel like it's a bug in the game of life that the man is going to try and fix because it shouldn't be possible. Uh, it seems too good to be true, and I think it's it's a real great thing. You know, i i would i would I would argue the point that I think yeah. that the as it were the man it would actually be kind of cool with that because a larger organization probably isn't going to take a, a financial risk. But if you have a proven track record using Kickstarter of uh, one having great ideas, two getting them consistently backed beyond what you set out to, and consistently put out a good product, I could see the possibility of getting um, money injected in at a larger level. Um, so I think perhaps it might even it, it actually has an opportunity to be even better for for smaller groups that um, because nobody's going to step into that because they wouldn't be willing to take that risk yeah, yeah. and that risk is assumed by a group of individ- like-minded individuals who are interested in the same thing and then they have the ability to do that research and look at you know how successful you have been, what your track record is, and if they are willing to to, to take that risk to to help you achieve more uh, with what you're trying to do. So, yeah, it's a whole I, new model. Yeah, it really is, and I, it it's a good model, and I, I honestly don't think you know with Kickstarter, Indiegogo, uh, who else is out there? Because there are a, a few others. Um. Overall, I, I think it's been, no matter what your medium that you work with or, or what you're trying to do, those those companies are there, and um, I don't really think that they're going to go away anytime soon. That's my hope. My, my hope, especially for games on Kickstarter, is that it isn't a bubble uh, and that this, this sort of renaissance we're in is indicative of things to come. Yeah. It, I really don't think that something like this could 
could actually be a bubble because the the public the public is in direct control of well not direct control but based on based on your ideas and what you're doing as an individual that immediately translates to either success or yeah there's a there's a one to one demand on the product yeah um so i think as a whole we are seeing a lot of games coming out but i don't see that particularly as a bubble and glenn do, do you see the same thing? Because you have a, a brick-and-mortar point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you think that that's accurate, or do you think that that's rose-colored glasses view of the whole thing? No, I think it's pretty... I mean, I think if it is a bubble, I mean, it's just starting. But, I mean, along those same ways, I've been hearing uh, for years now when I go to trade shows... Oh, the magic bubble's going to pop. <laughs> the gathering's going to pop. But, you know, yeah. they've been saying that every year, and it occasionally deflates a little. Yeah. But, I mean, they're going on tw- 21, 22 years, it hasn't popped. So, I mean, even though they've had some downs, no, I, I, I don't see this popping anytime soon, um, as long as there are still uh, board game players which I think we're going to have for quite a while still, and just or just, just tabletop players, um, which as long as those of us who are alive right now are still alive, we'll still have them. Yeah. I, mean, I, I assume perhaps someday in the future everything will be done via virtual reality where we just sit in a chair with a catheter and an IV <laughs> tube, and that's all we do, but I still think that's, that's a long ways off. Yeah. Glad to hear it. And, you know, even even if it were to happen, there would still be a quote-unquote retro market. Yeah. Um, it, it might be smaller, but it would still exist. I mean, if you would have asked me 10, 15 years ago, would vinyl still be produced? I would have probably said, oh, CDs are pretty strong, and cassette tapes, mm, they wear out. I don't see vinyl really coming back. Uh, obviously, I, I, I was wrong. Um so I, there's always going to be, I think, a an, an interest and uh, uh, kind of uh, a retro market for for things. Uh, well, and along those lines, I mean, even even if the market itself declines drastically, this would still be an avenue that this product could be made. Yeah, be- because Absolutely. if places, if all the stores like my stores all disappeared in you know the next ten, twenty years, whatever. Well, then we're, you know, and people aren't buying these things off Amazon. Well, then those who want these games are going to have to get them somewhere. And it's, yeah. Like, Kickstarter would be even Kickstarter more important. Would be a thing because yeah. it'd be like, well, I've got 500 people who want this, but how am I going to get them? I don't have the money to make the 500 copies yeah. before they buy it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this thing still exists. So, and I think as long as someone out there can make money off of this, it'll still exist. Sure. No, the absolutely. The guys, I'm sure, are doing <laughs> quite well for themselves. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. Um, now, uh, tell us, your your project that you have out right now is Grin. Yes. Now, I read a little bit about it, but I really want this to come from you. What is Grin, and what makes it so special? Um, Grin is a role-playing game, uh, a horror role-playing game, to be precise. Um or a storytelling game, you might say, but 
I prefer the term role-playing game. Uh, it's fairly rules-light. Uh, it's one page of rules text, uh, you know, one side, one page, fairly light, and uh, that's the whole system. And it doesn't use dice, unlike most role-playing systems. The only thing you need to play it is a normal deck of playing cards. Uh, I do sell a little custom deck to sort of enhance the experience with some cool art, but normal playing cards work just fine. Uh, are you familiar with the game Dread? That's normally the comparison that players make. I am not. Glenn? Is that one that uses the Jenga tower? Yeah, it's it's. I we just started carrying in my store. They just finally started going through regular distribution. So yeah, I'm I'm yeah. familiar with it. That's what a lot of people compare it to. So the whole idea behind the system is that it sort of facilitates the experience of being characters in a horror movie, uh, and part of that is the inevitable looming sort of death specter in the corner. Uh, and the way the system does that is in your normal deck of 52 cards, there's one card, uh, the Joker, which just spells certain death. Anytime you want to do something, you draw a card from the deck. It's like your skill check in D&D or, or any other role-playing system. Uh, and if the Joker comes up, it's always buried sort of towards the bottom of the deck, but if it comes up, your character dies. It's the end of the line. Uh, there are a couple other little, little small things that, that accelerate it, like if you trip a face card, uh, you have to pull again in order to to complete your task. Uh, if you pull an ace out of the deck, you get to keep it, and you can use it later to say screw you to the to the GM or to another player, and either avoid a pull yourself or make another player pull a card. Um, and when you do die, or when your character dies, uh, you're still engaged as a player because the deck gets smaller, so death gets more likely to the other players. Four cards get pulled out, and they get given to the player whose character died, and he can oh, use those cards like aces to continue influencing the story as it progresses. And that's the whole system. And I, I will say what I liked about it is, opposed to Dread, I could play this in a car on, say, my way to Gen Con. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's the thing that people have said that made the comparison to Dread, because I, I played a bunch of Dread in college, and part of the problem with it is uh, me and my friends got really good at Jenga after a while. Like, we got really good. And that... <laughs> That meta element sort of distracted from the game because we'd be focused on the physical component of the tower, and even though there was tension there, there was a disconnect between the tension of the tower falling and the tension that was happening in the story. Uh, and also, I've played Dread with some people that are very, very bad at Jenga, and you know their dexterity as a person shouldn't really influence the meta-narrative of the story in the way that I've seen it happen. So the deck of cards is just... The, the pure chance. And I think it still retains the sort of um, uh, impending demise that the tower has, because you can see the deck thinning out. You know, you see the cards burn, the stack gets smaller, and you know that Joker is more and more likely to come up. Wow. That's a really, really cool concept. And I, you know, any time that you can play a game that is that is light on rules, usually, I mean, uh, obviously you're going to be able to start a, a game very quickly. Um, yes, I've run know. it at, uh, I don't know, half a dozen small conventions around Seattle and, like, storytelling game nights. Um, and non-gamer people, people that aren't familiar with RPGs, pick it up really quickly. Since it's one page of rules, you can just, you can explain it to someone as quickly as I explained it to you. One minute later, you're, you're playing the game. And everyone knows what a horror movie's like. People know the tropes. And sure. it's very easy for, for a non-role player to sort of slip in. And it's a good it's a good gateway into a role-playing experience for people who might not otherwise be interested. I was just going to say this is an excellent gateway drug into <laughs> getting <Yeah>. into <laughs> RPGs. No, that's that's really good. Uh, I, I, 
the the thing that popped into my head when you mentioned the deck of cards is uh, cheap ass games. Yes, you know, I actually I know James Ernest. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, he's he's a fellow Seattleite, and I actually I've helped him play test on a couple occasions for, for his game is, as well. That is cool. Yeah, he's a real cool guy. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's always cool to be able to do something where you can reuse, you know, figures or something else, um, because it's so easy to just kind of swap things in and out, and then it's easier to get into a game uh, like this when you can swap in pieces, um, reuse other things. I, I always appreciate that because that's, I think that that's. That's an exceptional way to to create a game. It makes it very accessible. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's even a little supplement, uh, also totally free, um, that introduces candlelight as a mechanic. Uh, and each player starts with a little spread of matches in front of them, and they can burn the matches basically uh, the same as you'd use an ace in a normal game to sort of avoid a pull or make someone else pull. And when that player's character is eliminated, they extinguish their candle flame, so the room kind of gets darker as the horror story progresses. Oh. <laughs> so you definitely have a bit more uh, mood to the game, too. That's, yeah, I think that's you know, cool. ambiance is real important when it comes to horror stories because there's a big difference between watching a horror movie on a screen in a park in the afternoon than watching it alone on your computer with headphones at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. I... There are some horror movies that I will not watch at night. Um, I can't. Um, I remember seeing a, an image of uh, people watching Jaws on a inflated uh, movie screen while they're sitting in inner tubes. Oh, no. That's a great immersive way to watch that movie. You wouldn't catch me dead doing it, but I appreciate the concept. <laughs> yeah. you know, mood, mood and getting you there is half the battle, especially when it comes to something I have like one of the horror. other free products I have up uh, with Grin on DriveThruRPG. Is, uh, it's called 30 Rules of Horror, and it's just a small, it's like a two- or three-page guide for DMs to make horror experiences really authentic. It's just a bunch of, like, bulleted tips. And it's okay. system agnostic. You know, you can, use it, you can use it if you're running Ravenloft or, or Dread or Grin or whatever you want. Sure. No, that's... That's great, and let's let's talk a little bit more about some of the the supplements and other things that you've written to dovetail in with things like Wizards of the Coast. Uh, tell us about some of those. Uh, well, I have similar to Drive Through RPG. I'm mean, using the same engine. Uh, I think the advent of the Dungeon Masters Guild is also a pretty neat sort of come about of of the internet age. I think it's really cool that uh, fans and people in the Wizards of the Coast community can contribute products, and those products will rise or fall in popularity as the sort of populace deems it. Um, probably my most popular supplement that I've made for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition is called Visions of the Vault. Uh, it's, uh, I think, like a, a silver seller maybe on the site, so it's in the top, I don't know, 3% of products, um, and it's just an expansion of real cool magic items. Well, I think they're cool anyway. Um, but so I've made a lot of mods in that vein. Oh, there we are. Yeah, for those of you who are checking us out, uh, if you're listening to us on Alpha Geek or if you're listening to us uh, on your podcatcher, whatever you use uh, right now, if you check us out on YouTube.com, uh, you can see that we're flipping through Arcana Games uh, drive-through RPG 
<clears throat> excuse me, portal essentially their their page of uh, of everything that uh, Eugene has put uh, together here, and uh, and you've put together quite a bit. There's a lot of different things here. Yeah. Uh, blade and brush right there. That was uh, my most recent Kickstarter. It's a it's kind of like a Cards Against Humanity apples to apples type thing, except instead of putting pre-made jokes together, you're uh, writing haiku. It's very Avatar The Last Airbender themed. <laughs> okay. I'm pulling that up right now. Definitely <laughs> in a different vein than the whole horror shtick. Oh, sure. Oh, even see, and the artwork fits, again, like we were talking about before, you want to make sure that you're... Yeah, the artist I worked with on that was fantastic. I basically just said go, and he, he did it. That is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well done. And uh, you talked about the 30 rules to horror. Um, yes. We pulled that up here, too, so people can have a chance to, if you're checking us out on YouTube, to be able to see what that uh, supplement, essentially... And, you know, supplement may not be the right word, but uh, good tips to to making an immersive experience, especially in the horror genre. Um, yeah, you have a lot of, a lot of wonderful things here. Um, now, we talked earlier... Oops, here we go. Sorry. I'm flipping around too much. I'm going to pull us off. <laughs> Shared. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, or we talked about earlier, that you've kind of gone to a a free or 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 pay pay what you want model for your products. Yeah. Now, what benefits have you seen uh, or project to see by by using this uh, as a business model? Um. I mean, as an immediate business model, it's probably a pretty poor idea because it doesn't actually make a lot of money. But my, my biggest aim for it isn't to make a lot of money. My biggest aim is to sort of get things out there and get my name known. I'm kind of trying to establish myself as an independent publisher. Sure. So by putting products up there for, for free or pay what you want, basically free, uh, you get vastly more downloads than you were even just charging you know, a cent or 10 cents or 50 cents for things. And the, the publicity and, you know, just having people out there that are familiar with your name, familiar with your products, is far more valuable to me at this stage of the game than, than a monetary gain. Like, I was at a convention uh, outside Seattle, I think it was in, it might have been in Tacoma, a couple months ago, uh, and someone came up to me, and they were like, hey, you're the guy that made, uh, you know, so-and-so. And I was like, oh, I am. And it was, it was a very neat experience. It's the first time that's happened to me. I was like, all right, someone someone has taken one of those free things that I put out there on the internet, and they've they've used it. All right, I'm doing okay. That's got to be a cool feeling. Yeah, it was very neat, and you know, something I hope will will repeat and snowball. Um, also, part of part of Arcana Games. Um, of course, I'm hoping that I will be independently successful enough that I can sort of turn this part-time thing. Uh, into a into a full-time business the same way that it went from a hobby to a part-time thing. But um, if it's not independently successful, if it just sees sort of marginal success and people like my games, but, you know, my distribution model isn't right or I'm just not publicizing things the proper way, um, my sort of backup plan is hopefully that it might act as a, a stepping stone to a career at a larger gaming company who sees my work and likes what I produce but can offer that side of the industry that I can't do alone. Sure. Okay. No, I, you know, like we said earlier, you really have to play the long game with this, and I think your your approach right now to get your foot in the door uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, and it, it looks like a, not everything that you've produced is, you know, uh, pay what you want. 
Um, so you have that, you're not doing the whole thing like that. Yeah, and of course, you know, for things that have physical components like the card game, Blade and Brush, you know, I need to charge something to cover the printing and shipping costs yeah. of the cards and then yep. all that on top. No, absolutely. Uh, drive-through RPG. We, we've talked about that quite a bit here uh, on on the show, and Glenn and I, you know, if if you are not able to find, you know, a brick and mortar, you know, we always try to say, you know, buy local. Um, if you're unable to find that locally, uh, we we like to to use drive-through uh, drive-through RPG. What do you feel about, or or what do you like about the the immediacy that uh, drive-through RPG can can offer people. Well, I think it's just another extremely useful tool, both for designers and publishers like myself, and for the general populace that that likes games. Uh, just because it it offers something that otherwise couldn't be possible. I mean, the it, it goes hand in hand with Kickstarter, really. Like the fact that you can do a limited print run of books and give a hundred copies, or five hundred copies, or a thousand instead of ten thousand. That's because of places like drive-through RPG. Um, you know, they give you those tools necessary. I think it's a really good thing for the community. And I think the, as with Kickstarter, what what they ask in exchange is very reasonable. I mean, Drive-Thru RPG takes a, a pretty reasonable cut, and uh, the publicity is good. Um, you can promote things with a currency that's accrued from being successful on their site, which is really neat. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. a, lo- a lot of the features are kind of arcane to work with. It takes some know-how to get to navigate the site from the publisher side, but mm. I think it's a fantastic tool. Okay. No, that's that's good to know, and especially for people who might be listening or watching us on YouTube, <clears throat> it's good to get that, you know, a little bit more feedback from 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 indie folks who are doing this now, and if they're interested in getting on board to to hear, you know, the pros and the cons of of stuff. So definitely, we want to see more of this renaissance occur and have more great ideas being presented to other people. Um, because in the end, really, we all win <laughs> yes. uh, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, what uh, you mentioned that you had a project that you are working towards uh, getting uh, kind of tied up by. You said like the end of the summer, fall. Yeah, yeah. It's called uh, it's called Blood and Bone. Um, my my sort of tagline for it is a uh, Game of Thrones meets Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Um, so it's a it's a large role-playing system. You know, you'll buy a book like the Player's Handbook, some big 250-pager full of full of art and lore and what have you. Uh, and it's just a very, very sort of grim, gritty, dark take on the the high fantasy tropes of the, the role-playing experience. Would you say that this is one of the larger projects that you've put together? Yeah, I think it is. It is my biggest project, and I'm hoping it will be my flagship project. I intend on spending most of next year traveling around to various conventions and and promoting it. Uh, okay. And I'll produce a lot of supplements and adventures for it, and hopefully expansions. But uh, I like tabletop games, but I really think role playing games interest me the most. That's just that's what my background's in, and that's sure. that's what I want to pursue. And so this is hopefully going to be my first uh, full sized delve into the role playing world. Okay, and you know, quite honestly, with your pay what you want model, getting your name out there and your foot in the door, and then working your way up towards this makes absolute perfect sense. Um, uh, I mean, that this is a great way to go, and that's that's awesome. 
Um, first off, when you release uh, when you release Blood and Bone, we definitely want to have you back. Um, Absolutely. To, to talk about that. Um, yeah, we'd love to. Okay, cool. Um, any other projects on the well? <laughs> this is a massive project and a year long undertaking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what would you say? What do, what do you have on the back burner? Do you, are you looking more towards uh, two things? Two okay. things. Um, the first one is pretty under wraps right now, but hopefully I'll be kickstarting it this fall in time for this spooky Halloween season. Um, and my my go to description for people on this one is uh, it's the Ouija board of role playing games. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's on backburner number one, um, and backburner number two is a a very lighthearted drinking game that is actually completely produced uh, aside from the art, uh, and I'm I have a, a tentative lead on a publisher who might be interested, but in the event that falls through, that might be my next Kickstarter, and I might just boot it up myself. Oh, okay, that sounds cool. I, you know, uh, the uh, what is it, uh, the Baron Munchausen game. Um, Glenn, uh, yeah, it is. Okay, uh, that's that's a a drinking game. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. I have not played it. Oh, it's uh, it's just like a small book of of rules, and essentially, it's you know, it, you want to ideally play this in a in a place where you're all drinking, whether it's at a bar or whatever, yeah. and. Um, everybody everybody gets a turn telling some fabulous story and. Um, people can interject, and uh, I think games like that are really cool, and especially dr- alcohol adds always an interesting random <laughs> element to to anything you do, and to yes. add that to a game, I think is it can be fun if if done yeah. in moderation. <laughs> obviously, screw you, man! Indeed. I love you, man! <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, that's 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 a wonderful mechanic if 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 done well, and I I can't wait to 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 see what you've got in store once you once you roll that out. So awesome! All right, um, tell us. Uh, let's. I want to do this a little early. If people want to find out more about you, Eugene, and uh, Arcana Games, where should they go? Um, well, there is a website. Uh, arcana-games.com just googling arcana games will take you there that's got a little bio about me and it's got uh, information about the games that we talked about Uh, there's a Facebook page as well which will link to the website and has all sorts of cool art for the upcoming Blood and Bone Uh, a Google search will probably turn up both our Kickstarter pages as well for Blood and Bone and Blade and Brush and you can follow us on Twitter at arcana games uh, underscore BNB the BNB? B N B. Oh, B N B. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just taking notes as I go here. Okay. Sure. Uh, just so we make sure that we add this to um, our show notes here. Thank you. So people have the ability to to click into that and uh, and yeah. check out more. Excellent. Yeah. You can also, of course, uh, find the products themselves uh, by looking up Arcana Games on either Drive Through RPG or the Dungeon Masters Guild. Okay. Okay. Cool. I will make note of that as well. Oh, dungeon. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Uh, we are going to uh, talk a little bit about some feedback on previous episodes. Uh, 
Uh, I believe the last time we got together, we talked about PDF versus books uh, for RPGs and, and other games. And uh, one of our regular commenters, uh, Mihoshika, had, uh, had this to say, uh, the real pro of books is personal preference. Uh, I can think of no benefit uh, a book would have, though personally I don't like PDF much either. I prefer to have my documents in Google Docs, which yeah, I, I prefer to do that as well, and then I can check it out wherever I'm at. Uh, plain text rather than PDF, granted. Uh, then I can put in notes and such. Okay. Uh, Glenn's point about showing something uh, is neg uh, negated by highlighting. You mentioned multiple times how you both are biased, we are, uh, having grown up using books. The only real benefit of owning a book is simply being accustomed to using them, which I would not argue. Uh, PDFs are much easier to search than a book, especially on laptop or PC. I would agree with that. Trying to search on, you know, like using your, your phone um, is not, depending on the program you're using, I have an Android. I love this thing almost more than life itself, but it's a pain in the ass to search a PDF on this phone. So uh, laptop or PC, absolutely. Um, I, I think I actually have a disagreement to make with that point. Okay. Um, I think there's definitely something to be said about the book that transcends subjectivity. And I think that's because when I am playing a role-playing game, the entire experience for me uh, is sort of part of the experience design that goes into the game. And if mm -hmm. I'm playing something like Call of Cthulhu and my GM is sitting there looking at a laptop and he's got uh. the laptop on him and he's clicking on the keys, that detracts from the game for me. But if we're sitting there by candlelight and he's got this, this tome in front of him, this grimoire that he's flipping through, that adds to the experience for me. There's something to be said about that. Absolutely. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, uh, especially with Grin, having that mood and keeping that mood is kind of critical to the whole experience itself. And, you know, if you're, if you're playing, you know, uh, cyberpunk, uh, 2044 or whatever, uh, something computer-based. Do I have my year right on Cyberpunk? It's been so long since I played. Uh, or Shadowrun. We'll yeah. get more current. Uh, Shadowrun. Uh, you know, having a computer, laptop, device, whatever, that absolutely would add to the mood. Uh, yeah. A little electronic music playing on it softly in the background, just fine. But absolutely. For D&D or something, I think it's cool to have the book on the table. Yeah. Well, it's also, I will also say is, I'm heading to Gen Con in two weeks, and try to find an open outlet at that place. Because <sighs> does but, your laptop battery last 12 hours? Cause... Uh, mine will die promptly when I unplug my computer from the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that, I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, the fact that I, I will be taking my tablet with like 40 yes. PDFs on it, because I can't carry 40, no. 40 books with me. Um, I and used to when I was young and stupid and didn't realize that this back has to last me until I die. <laughs> so true. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and I think we mentioned this before, and, and I would not argue this point at all. Portability, especially if you are going to uh, someplace where you, or you have a game or game system that has multiple... Um, 
<clears throat> expansions or or additional bits of content for the game you can't carry a backpack around that that's that huge or a a wheeled suitcase that looks kind of weird um you know uh can you do it sure but for the sake of portability absolutely i think that a pdf or a text file shared in 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 a google doc or whatever your uh preferred uh, cloud um, uh, item of choice to use is 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 perfect for for that type of setting. That said, if you're hanging out with uh, friends in in the same town where you live, you know, uh, we're I'll, I'll be playing Pathfinder uh, tomorrow, and I have my backpack that's dedicated to right now the particular character that I'm playing and the three to four books that I need for that particular character for this game. <clears throat> um, and there's something about, to me, and I mentioned this before, being able to quickly flip through things. I'm just used to that, and, you know, I'm biased, and and I I won't even try to deny it. Um, to me, that, it, that works out better for me. But, again, uh, beating a dead horse on that. But, no, the, you, you bring uh, great points to this, uh, Mihoshika, and thank you so much for for contacting us. Uh, one more item, and this is from Flav Flavius uh, Quintori. Flavius Quintori. Uh, and this goes back to uh, Pat Rothfuss, who we had on episode 7, um, talking about uh, world building in writing, but also in RPGs. Uh and and he says Dune was an absolute epic, and this goes back to me saying I can't I can't read Dune. I get to the point every time in the book where, you know, Paul puts his hand in the pain box, and now we've got thirty pages describing the pain and what it's all. I'm not going to deny that Herbert is an important writer. Very, he's just not my guy uh, when it comes to that. Uh, <laughs> Back to what Flavia said. That being said, uh, I also am absolutely enjoying Mr. Rothfuss's work. Pat is a is a very wonderful person and a hell of a writer. Um, uh, Eugene, I don't know if you're familiar with Name of the yeah. Wind. Name okay. of the Wind is one of my favorite books. Uh, actually, hopefully, I'll be meeting Pat in August. I made him a, a custom tack board. Oh. Yeah, which hopefully I'll be giving to him at uh, at PAX. Wonderful. Yeah, I, yeah. It, Pat, it, Glenn, and I have known Pat for a number of years, and he does not disappoint. He's a he's a very nice guy and a storyteller in real life and as a profession. So uh, he, you're gonna have a good time when you if you get a chance to to meet him and, and give him the board. I, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh. I completely agree with all his advice on world building, um, and that was actually one of the core tenets I, I, I based my game off, um, because one of the things that really bothers me in a lot of RPGs is sort of the inconsistency of, of magic and the world presented. Like, magic in Dungeons & Dragons is sort of at odds with the feudal world that you're given. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, Patrick does sympathy in his book so brilliantly. You know, the world is so informed by it, and it just... It's it's real perfect, uh, and yeah. I tried to embody that in the the magic system that I put forth in my game. Uh, that's that's an ideal that I hold very near to my heart. And you know he vetted that. And I think he mentioned it a little bit with, 
you know, he was into chemistry. That was a direction that he was kind of headed at at one point in his life, and that really informed his magic. And uh, a friend of, well, a previous guest of ours, Dr. Randy Wolfmeyer, is a physicist, and, you know, they got to talk a little bit about energy and exchange and, and how that would work and how that could t- kind of tie in with his magic. So he did painstaking research. And when we say painstaking, he had a chalkboard filled with the different types of currency for his world and how the exchange rate would work. I mean, it was like a whole massive... And when I say he had a chalkboard, it wasn't a little chalkboard. He had gotten a... Mad professor style. Yes, and it was at least 10 feet wide and four feet tall, if I recall correctly. And it was always filled with something. That is a great mental image. I can see it. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, he painstakingly went through everything, and it absolutely shows in the final product. So, um, yes, uh, this is another plug for Name of the Wind. If you haven't read it, stop what you're doing right now. Stop listening to this. Go find Name of the Wind and go read it. Uh, You will not be disappointed. no, uh, thank you very much, Flavius, for for uh, chiming in. And yes, uh, I I wish I could appreciate Dune more. I I, I honestly do uh, because I know how important of a writer that that he is. Um, but unfortunately, I just maybe I just need to to power through it. I had to do that with uh, the two towers uh, for for Tolkien, so I could get into Return of the King. Um, and maybe I just need to just power through the pain box portion of the book, and maybe I can I can move on and and stop being a a whiny so and so about it. So uh, thank you everybody for uh, chiming in and letting us know what you think. Uh, let us know uh, what was your favorite favorite part of this particular meeting with uh, with Eugene here from Arcana Games. Uh, let us know. You can contact us on YouTube, Facebook. Twitter or email, you can email us at adventure at gncasts.com and we will share uh, what you have to say with the rest of the party. Uh, you can keep on top of what Adventure Party is up to by following Galactic Netcasts on Twitter, by liking our Facebook page, or subscribing to our YouTube channel. Uh, we also have accounts on some other social media platforms as well. Just search for Galactic Netcasts or click on corresponding logos on the top right of our main webpage at gncasts.com. You can support all that Galactic Netcasts does by making a monthly recurring pledge at patreon.com slash galacticnetcasts. Your one, three, or five dollar a month uh, pledge uh, or a bit of support can help pay for operating costs such as web and audio hosting. Uh, The best part is at every level of giving, you will get bonus content that other listeners won't have access to. Again, if you want to contribute, go to patreon.com slash galacticnetcasts. Now, for more on this podcast, including show notes, contact info, or more, uh, go to gncasts.com slash adventure. And you can subscribe to the podcast by going to gncasts.com slash subscribe or search for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, which Google Play probably about a month ago now, uh, released uh, podcast functionality to the masses uh, that is available for you if you are a uh, dyed-in-the-wool Google fan or any other 
place where uh, fine podcasts are offered. You'll be able to get a RSS uh, address for uh, each of our shows on gncasts.com. Uh, I want to thank you, Eugene uh, Fasano, for uh, joining us and talking about Arcana Games, especially Grin, and uh, I had a great time talking with you. Uh, again, uh, where can people find out more about you? Uh, arcana-games.com will give you everything you need to know, and it will have links to get uh, the free games mentioned, like Grin and all of those little uh, modular add-ons. Okay, excellent. And uh, we would recommend that folks don't walk, run, and uh, check uh, Eugene's stuff out. Uh, you're you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, I want to thank Glenn once again for joining us uh, and talking about games and gaming. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, the B-Movie Bunker, and Mist Runner? You can find me on Facebook with the B-Movie Bunker. You can find me also on YouTube. You can find me at the brand new guyinabunker.com. Nice. And follow me on Twitter at guyinabunker. All right. Uh, I want to thank everybody so much for joining us uh, uh, at the Adventure Party. May your characters never die and your adventures always be epic. Thank you and good night. This has been a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com.